Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Well, some people like to dismiss slavery like it was nothing. But you see, slavery, it can never be forgotten. Some people not gonna like what me say, but me I gonna say it anyway. We are gonna talk about slavery and the effects of it today. Some people just don't want to know about 400 years ago. But the thing about slavery, it's affecting people now. I tell you no lie, when I see a film about Peace and welcome to the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Elia. This is the Black Talk Radio Network. This is our daily gathering, our, our daily program discussing the news regarding modern day slavery, which most of you know is mass incarceration. We discuss it, um, is slavery because that's what it is as according to the 13th amendment in this country the law the law of the land it's set up where we had slavery we had it it was perfectly legal you could ship people over here and put them into forced bondage and forced servitude and do all types of things to them they treat them like property call that chattel slavery treat them this way for generations and generations and generations hundreds of years of subjugation and abuse that went on in America and throughout the colonies the, the, the colonial age but then we had a civil war in this country and it's been played out to us as though the civil war was the reason that slavery ended we had this war where people just got tired of it in america and we we went to fight and we dropped all these bombs on each other and shot each other and stabbed each other and all these bloody field battles that went on that they teach you about in history class and just know that at the heart of it all it was that america was tired of slavery and they just wanted to stop slavery but here on this program, we discuss uh, the truth about the matter, and uh, Civil War had nothing to do with ending slavery as far as actually stopping the practice, and it definitely didn't have anything to do with um, alleviating the suffering of Africans in America and various others that were used as slaves for those times. 13th Amendment actually came about in took slavery out of the hands of individuals and made it a slave or a slave a state 
sanctioned practice. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution declares that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within these United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So with that exception, and with this explosion of mass incarceration, we discuss these matters as not being the new Jim Crow, as is very popular, but just the same old slavery. So with that in mind, here today, April 14th, 2015, we are giving you the daily news. We're going to be discussing a few issues regarding our judicial system, our justice system. We're going to take a look at uh, an article that asks a simple question, do you stand with the Constitution or with the police? And that's going to give us our introduction to discussing the Constitution and the law and and what is supposed to be going on and then uh, juxtapose that up against what the police actually do. And from there, we're going to be able to, to dig a little bit deeper into, I mean, this whole matter of, you know, with these police shootings, we're seeing issues that have to do with are the police, are the police even lawfully detaining individuals to, to question them, which is something that has been, you know, in the, in the, uh, the conversation for some time now, as we've seen the stop question and frisk, stop and frisk, uh, famous in New York City. And we've told you about the millions and millions of stops, um, in the small percentage of people who were ever even able to be arrested as a result of all those millions of stops. And of those people that were able to be arrested, the tiny percentage of those who were ever convicted of a crime, and out of that tiny percentage, the overwhelming majority of them, in the high 90s of the percentile, were uh, only convicted from a, a plea agreement. So that's something that will lead us into our next conversation, which is going to have to do with the situation at, at Rikers and really at jails across America but we've uh, referenced this young man several times, a young brother named Khalif Browder, who spent three years at Rikers and was never charged, formally never actually went to court and faced any charges and was just uh, allowed to leave at one point, um, you know, after his life had been pretty much uh, destroyed by uh, NYPD and the Bronx District Attorney's Office. Um, and he has since filed a, a lawsuit against the city and all that. I mean, he's alive and he's getting better. Um, but we're going to finally just talk about his story since I reference him all the time as an example of how the jails are full of people who really haven't even done anything. And as long as there's a large enough percentage of those people who can uh, matriculate on into the prison system, onto the slave plantations, you know, we're continuing as much as we are doing to exonerate people and bring people home that were wrongfully uh, accused and convicted in the first place. That's great, and we need to expand that, and, and we love those that are working to that end. But we're going to look at today um, some specific examples of people like uh, Brother Khalif that have been wrongfully snatched up off these streets, kidnapped, uh, put in these jails, and, you know, it just goes downhill from there. 
and that will tie us into um, today again uh, the 14th April 14th 2015 today is going to be uh, a day where Mayor uh, de Blasio up there in uh, New York is going to actually introduce um, new legislation that he's worked on to cut down on the number of inmates uh, people held at Rikers and to cut down on the time frame that it takes to get people to trial and get people the swift justice that they are constitutionally afforded. So that will give us an opportunity to look at at what he's proposing and uh, the situation in Rikers that, you know, he's willing to admit is is a problem as, as, uh, again, compared to what we will have, the personal story of a young Khalif Browder. This is also tying us into what a lot of uh, judges have been coming out and saying recently um, here over the last few weeks, and I've mentioned it on this program, excuse me, um, Supreme Court Justices uh, uh, Anthony Kennedy and uh, Stephen Breyer were before the House Appropriations Committee uh, discussing the 2016 budget for the Supreme Court and all of its operations and uh, they got into a conversation with those uh, representatives concerning mass incarceration and they had some some pretty straightforward language that they use discussing it. So, I mean, if nothing else, it's just good to hear them discussing it. But in the weeks since then, I've been noticing uh, uh, more and more judges speaking up about the policing situation, about the plea situation, about our justice system, and uh, about the place of, of uh, attorneys, you know, in the in our country as far as what their job really is to, to make sure justice is... is uh, you know, being put forth. So we'll have some more opinions from other uh, judges, uh, federal judges, district judges, whatnot, different, uh, different, highly uh, respected and, and regarded individuals who are speaking up about um, our nation's situation. And to finish off, we'll we'll just tie all this together with you know the things that have caused this rise in mass incarceration, as they call it, um, the, uh, the 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 renaissance, the slavery renaissance. Um, that has gone on since the 70s until this day perpetrating this idea that somehow people um, became more criminal I guess is is the idea that's put out there I mean if we all accept that our prison ranks swole the way that they did, then we must be accepting that people somehow just became more criminal because the ranks were pretty solid for a number of years. It was it was uh, an explosion that we saw, and there's really no explanation for it. They blamed it on crack, but really the crack use in America was not really any any more than what drug use had been in the country previously we just had cameras in the in the poor and black neighborhoods showing these black people you know looking insane running up to the car to buy the drugs or running you know all strung out of houses and whatnot but that had been going on in america 
you know, for decades, I mean, generations. The whole idea of prohibition of liquor had to do with, uh, hell, with white women being disgusted with their husbands, boozing it up constantly. That's where the movement even began, was the women complaining that the men wouldn't even come home. They stayed at the bars. They stayed boozed and laying in the gutters and this type of thing. That's where the entire wino and bums and hobos and, and drunk and disorderly, they, all of these images and even, you know, the earliest cartoons and the, the earliest uh, iconic characters that we began to know for those types of characteristics, that's all a result of that, you know, early uh, pre-Depression era time in America when there really was no municipal water system. So people had wells or go to the river or, you know, where do you get water from? There's So there really wasn't. But everybody had alcohol. And they even had advertisements showing people how to, you know, that they should give their babies a drink of beer to calm them down or put them to sleep or whatever. Women were, you know, encouraged to drink. I mean, this was America's uh, greatest tax revenue was generated off of alcohol. And because people were, you know disgusted by seeing folks stretched out in the street and vagrancy and the joblessness that was, you know, beginning to mount in the country. You know, these are all problems that were already destroying the dominant community, destroying white folks. And again, this was in the era that was toward the end of slavery itself. So when you see slavery come to an end, and as they say, in 1865, in those years following, and we've already discussed the number of black folks taking over the state prison populations. But there's a fair number of blacks that were able to get out and start their own communities and create their own economies, create their own jobs and, and take care of themselves. But there were still those that needed to fold into the dominant society and of course they were able to take jobs I mean just like we see now with the immigration situation that was a huge complaint of white America from the 90s all through Clinton and the NAFTA deal and you're shipping jobs to, to Mexicans and you're bringing in you know sending Mexicans up here to get take our jobs and you know all this kind of stuff this is what you know and that's what the race riots over the last couple hundred years were about in America, even before slavery was ended, was about people wanting to have the jobs that were being given to slaves. So even in the in the aftermath of slavery, um, in the in the days after the Emancipation Proclamation, we saw uh, blacks were folding into these into these jobs, and you know whites were out of work, and this would start up race riots in different cities throughout the, the country go on for days or weeks of people raiding black communities and beating and killing and raping and destroying the neighborhoods and all the businesses and decimating these people to nothing because they didn't want them having those jobs because there weren't that many jobs and the drunkenness was rampant drug use was rampant these drugs weren't even illegal at those times so we don't even know how many people were using heroin and cocaine it was perfectly legal opium and so forth 
So fast forward to the 1970s, and you got the war on drugs kicks off. And so not long after the war on drugs kicks in, and again, there's nothing showing that drug use was out of control. It was something that could be criminalized, could be hyper-criminalized, hyper-policed. And that's what they did. It became a revenue generation. It started to fund wars and and operations around the world with with this funds with this money and that was taken to the next step by the by the Reagan administration and the whole Iran Contra deal and we've all heard of the freeway Rick uh, Rick Ross situation with uh working with the government informants I believe his uh, name was uh, uh Blandone Danello Blandone this guy who's working for the federal government and, and is uh, representing you know himself as a as a drug dealer he can get hundreds and hundreds and tons and tons of of uh of uh cocaine and bring it right into Los Angeles and then he lets the black guy go ahead and distribute that all throughout Los Angeles and get more people on his level and it just starts to fan out where you start to see blacks making major major money which is the same thing we saw with again with the American gangster phenomenon with the Frank Lucas deal got these connects and then these black men are able to be the kingpins and then they start getting more people into the drug dealing and then they get busted and all that money that was generated from that is used for other purposes and so like I said we begin to see the rise of TV shows like Cops and you start to see video footage of all these black crackheads and all these movies start coming out the New Jack Cities and Boys in the Hoods and you start to see black people portrayed in movies and in in books and on TV as you know crack addicted and the, and the, the decimation of the black families and the black communities based on crack not on poverty not on the nation's issue uh, with drug abuse and, and defunding, which Nixon did, comp- totally strip and defund social projects that were in place and, and uh, safety nets that were in place, mental health facilities that were in place. Took all that funding away, so now the mentally ill are self-medicating. Took that funding away, so people with drug addiction are struggling now don't have options don't have help so they're on the streets self-medicating and not able to get out of the problem and then the rise of the private prisons and the private prison model reintroduces slavery and with the private prison model reintroducing slavery the federal government takes its own programs like Unicor and expands on them from making prison clothing and various things that they use in the prisons to expanding that into now you're going to make the furniture for all state offices in the nation now you're going to make the dog tags and the body armor and various military hardware so that our military can continue to go around the planet spreading democracy with bombs and troops and hummers and guns and everything else this is so these things are all intertwined and they continue to this day and so like I said to begin with we don't necessarily see that people became more criminal we have shown here again and again that the government whether it's the federal government or working down on state levels or even local levels 
have all conspired to come together to find ways to more aggressively police people and more aggressively convict people and therefore be able to introduce people back into modern day slavery so with all that said let's take a look our first article is from NOLA.com a brother named Jarvis DeBerry who wrote this and he asked the question do you stand with the constitution or with the police and this is how we'll dive into these matters today he says we've got a constitution and we've got a contemporary American policing and the co-founder of a non-profit called Equal Justice Under Law writes in the Harvard Law Review that those two things, the Constitution and modern policing, have almost nothing to do with one another. Alex, wow, Alex Karakatasinasis begins his essay in District of Columbia courtroom where he's telling students at a public high school that per the Constitution, the police have no right to stop them without reasonable suspicion that they're committing a crime. No, you don't understand, a student responds. These are the jump-outs, not the police. They're allowed to do that. And you may remember we discussed that on this program also. Several weeks back, we talked about Washington, D.C. and the jump-out squads and the young kids, 17- and 18-year-old teens still in high school, walking back and forth to school, and they've, they've reported they've all been stopped at least 10 times by these same jump-out squads. We talked about the young brother, that was gunned down by the jump out squads and the video footage came out and showed unmarked Ford Explorer packed to the gills with big buff white boys wearing body armor and carrying assault rifles and no markings no the vehicles not marked their clothes are not marked police or nothing they just roll up damn near run him over and do a drive by shooting on him And then somehow a BB gun is found at the scene and they claim when they saw him, he turned and, you know, it's the same story again and again. But these jump outs is something that is known in uh, in Washington, D.C. He says, no, they're allowed to do that. Talking about the jump out squads, they're allowed to, to do what they do. So there's nothing we can say. He says, that's the slang for squads in the police of D.C., who jump out of their cars and stop and frisk pedestrians. They are the police, plain and simple. He writes that when I heard those words, my heart sank. In front of me was a child in whose world being stopped and frisked was so regular, such a fact of everyday life, that he had reasonably concluded that it must be lawful. This child was run up believing that his suspicious body could be probed at will by government employees. We talked <clears throat> not so long ago, and he's talking about in this in this article, on this uh, in his uh, series of articles, he also wrote another piece um, called Our Fourth Amendment Rights Have Been Eroded by the Drug War. And so in that piece, he went into depth uh, discussing uh, in the 20th century how the country came up with the idea of the drug war and had to make a choice. Do we maintain the integrity of the Fourth Amendment or do we fight this unnecessary and unwinnable war? So obviously we all know the answer. And he references Radley Balco the author of this of a book called The Rise of the Warrior Cop, The Militarization of America's Police Forces, and he's a regular contributor to the Washington Post where he discusses the Fourth Amendment and how it's had so little meaning in the drug war. In a way, he wrote 
the colonists who complained about the aggressive law enforcement practices of England had more protection than today's American citizen. For example, British soldiers could serve warrants only during the day. That's just one difference between now and, and back then, now how we have progressed. And they were always required to knock, announce themselves, announce their purpose, and give the resident time and opportunity to come to the door to let them in peacefully. This was all in observance of castle doctrine, or the idea that the home should be a place of peace and sanctuary, and that it should uh, be violated only in the most extreme circumstances. Well, when you're dealing with people of color, that's an automatically extreme circumstance. See, I'll tell you that. I don't know that any of the rest of them are going to say that outright. And, I mean, I don't know if they feel like they should or if they if they need to, but I feel like you need to hear somebody say it because you're not hearing it from anybody else. I watched the First Lady in a video today where she's going in-depth with passion, and she's very specific about you know the conditions and the in the in the in the situations that people face, and she's naming names and talking about the degradation of, of humanity in regards to America's history and treatment of uh, of indigenous people of the American Indian. And I, I have no problem whatsoever with American. I have many uh, friends. I wouldn't say many, but I mean somewhere around ten to twelve people I know that are that are like supposedly like real American Indian people still existing today they still live the, the the reservation life or whatever people I've met over the years my own family has blood ties to it my grandfather's side all through Louisiana American Indian people my grandmother's side her mother was straight up half and half black and Indian so I mean it's there and I respect it and love it I'd like to know more about my own history all that's fine so I'm not saying anything I'm saying from a standpoint of having any kind of issues I have nothing but love but it's a little bit suspect when Michelle Obama who herself and her and her husband are president have been on not just a short leash but a choke chain for the eight years or whatever since he's you know seven and a half years since he's been in office that they had better not say not even one thing about black people's conditions and if they do what they better say is that things are good and that we're doing better and that we need to work harder to take hold of this american dream there's been no discussion of the conditions that we live in and the, the problems that we face the systemic issues, the, the traditional generational issues. These things haven't been discussed. But to hear her talking about what's going on with the American Indians and how what, what we did as though herself as a black woman or black people, I guess, but I guess she's speaking for the office of the presidency, speaking for the for the federal government. And, and associating herself directly with being one of the perpetrators of the crimes of, against humanity that went on when her own people were enslaved. So they weren't we doing anything. So this whole idea that we've come to this point and, and this is why they say that it took extreme circumstances for them to violate castle doctrine and we see that extreme circumstances are what they considered every interaction 
with black people to be. Walter Scott was an extreme circumstance. According to the cop, Smegma, Slegla, I forget what the guy's name is, that, that shot him eight times, five times in his back as he was running away. That was an extreme situation to him. Eric Harris, Tulsa, Oklahoma, shot by the 74-year-old so-called reserve deputy who thought he was pulling a taser. The man was already being held down by several officers. Eric Garner, these are extreme situations. Our unexplainable black death profile today, Ayanna Jones. Nighttime, no-knock, bust in the door, flashbang, start shooting. Police, law enforcement, they consider it to be an extreme situation. They're dealing with people of color. And it's not just people of color. I mean, to be honest, it's it's really all Americans. There's plenty. There's Asians. The Asian baby that had his face burned off by the flashbang. There's hundreds of white people that had their doors kicked in. Dogs been shot. They've been shot. You know, this is just what's going on right now. So we'll continue to talk about the difference in our Constitution and in our policing and where that gap uh, is and just continue to progress the program forward making our case for modern-day slavery. You are listening to the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Alaya here on the Black Talk Radio Network, and we will be right back. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we are back. This is the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Alaya here on the Black Talk Radio Network. And you know, I like to take the time after our first break to just go ahead and remind you that we are in the midst of our 2015 fundraiser. It's a very straightforward situation, people. If you enjoy the programming, learn from the programming, gain anything from the programming, then we need you to make a donation to ensure that the programming can continue to be presented here. I really have nothing else to to sell you on the idea. I mean, it's that simple. This is 100% community-sponsored radio programming. This is our effort in the propaganda war. This is the shots that we fire. And if we don't have our own shots that we fire, then we're just only taking hits. So that's why we have to be mindful of supporting our own. We all seem to claim that we love Malcolm X. Well, Malcolm was very straightforward about propaganda. He said, I've had enough of someone else's propaganda. I'm for truth, no matter who tells it. I'm for justice, no matter who is it is for or against. I'm a human being first and foremost, and as such, I'm for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole. He said himself back in the day he was tired of everybody else's propaganda. Enough already. With everybody else telling the story. 
And so what we do here is focus on telling you the truth, the facts. We give you statistics, we give you resources, we, we give you links, we give you authorities, doctors, scholars, academics, I mean, just on and on and on to make the case clear for you. And, I mean, at times I get comments from people and, and uh, uh, emails or whatnot, messages from people that say that they appreciate it, but it's sometimes overwhelming. Well, I mean, the problem is overwhelming. So, of course, the information is going to feel overwhelming at times. The problem's overwhelming. We are drowning. That overwhelming that you feel is the, is the, the, the body of water surrounding us. It's drowning us. And we have to learn to swim. This is where you can learn to get your head up, find the shore, and start making your way towards it. We are in behind enemy lines. We are in a domestic colony here, people of color. This is the Black Talk Radio Network. This, I mean, it should be pretty obvious. This is the flag. This is the flare. You trying to get the cover? You trying to get to camp? We're sending up the flare, showing you where to go. If you love your people, you love your friends and your community and you love the people at your church, you, you love your, your homie at the job. Or, hell, you love your husband, you love your wife, you love your children. Point them in the direction of the flare. Point them in the direction of where our rallying point is. This is where we put up the flag. This is where we have supplies, provisions, protection, training. This is where we are coming together and putting together our plans we are working on solutions we're not just telling you the problems and mentioning solutions time to time we are actively working in the solutions every day when we got off this program yesterday Scotty and I talked for probably another hour after the program about our newest operation we're working on where we're going to be plotting out all of these presidential candidates that are going to be coming up and we're going to be putting them to the test of abolitionism putting up the standards that abolitionists have set to call them out where do you stand on mass incarceration modern day slavery where do you stand on ending some of these problems that are affecting us so hardcore we're not afraid to present our issues for some reason it seems like black leadership is completely afraid and determined to avoid speaking on something that affects black people directly. What do you see these other groups doing? Do you see the, the immigrants, the Latinos, mealy mouth and hunched over and scary biting their nails as they will if you could just maybe consider the um millions of people that are here uh illegally that um we just um want you please will you oh I know it's too much. I don't want to really ask you um but if you, uh, I know, I know you can't yet, but if you, hell no. They are vetting out every candidate based on their personal issues. Unashamed. They put Obama to the test in 2008. They migrated largely from the Republican Party over to the Democratic Party to vote for him because he promised he would do something about the DREAM Act and do something about 
the anchor babies and the and the people that have been here and all these different issues that are specific to their problems. Now we got caught up in the bank crisis for a few years and he had to help out his Wall Street buddies and make sure they all quadrupled their freaking trillion dollar wealths and all this type of thing and make sure nobody went to jail for any of the defrauding of hundreds of millions of Americans and you know he had to do all of that he had to handle his damage control there so he did what he needed to do to take care of all of them but you know years passed and then he came back around to the immigration situation and while he was working with with the banks you know the operation streamline was in place already and he turned a blind eye to congress when they took all the money from the lobbyists who paid for the mandatory minimum 34,000 people a day that need to be detained immigrants illegals that need to be detained he turned a blind eye to that he didn't do anything to stop it and hasn't repealed it hasn't spoken up on it so those 34,000 a day that's geo groups money that's cca's money that's mtc's money and when they get their money then you know all the other vendors get their money too so this is all information we just lay out to you and now we're laying out to you that we're working on a program that's going to be vetting out the candidates based on whether or not they are concerned about modern day slavery and human trafficking that's what we're giving you that's what you contribute to the network that's what you're helping us afford to be able to reach out to thousands and thousands of people and actually affect, impact the political system. Shame these people, if nothing else. Well, so-and-so said he's looking at it, and we got him on record saying that this, 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 and this, and he hasn't taken funds from these people, and, and you have, and then he and start making it an actual political battle based on the reality of what's affecting us, as opposed to them doing... Because you're going to see all the freaking slam commercials about Hillary. You're going to see Jeb Bush get shamed and slammed on a bunch of drama and reality show back and forth BS that really doesn't affect your quality of life. Sure, Benghazi was an issue, yeah. And I hate what happened in Libya with everything in me. That is one of the most disgusting black marks on America in recent times. It's just ridiculous what, what has gone on throughout Africa, actually. So, yes, she should be held accountable for whatever she had to do with any of that, and I understand why they will be focusing on that. But we have no clue what Hillary Clinton thinks about mass incarceration. Support the Black Talk Radio Network. We will not only get the questions out to her, we'll get her answers and we'll give you her responses and we'll discuss it at length and get you involved in the conversation. And by the time voting day comes... We'll have an informed electorate that will have a demand in its hand, and we will actually be able to, as people of color, actually be... Can you imagine the dream of coming forward as a people with a demand in our hand when we head to that voting booth, as opposed to just blindly going in to keep the other guy out? That's how we vote. Well, it's the lesser of two evils, and we don't want him to get in there, so... We, we better be, we better go in there, go make sure they don't get in, cause they gonna, ooh, they gonna treat us bad if they. What we need to be focused on is having a demand in our hand and making it very clear and getting whatever kind of contract we can get out of these people. Okay, with your vote, I will address this issue. I will do, I'm willing to do this, 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 and this to make sure. I'll, I'll do at least five things for you 
And if Congress shoots down four, we'll at least get one. If they shoot them all down, it, hell, I went and did what I could. You go get them guys in Congress fired in the midterm. I mean, we need to work together as opposed to just ignoring the problem and thinking every four years we're going to be able to fix the problem by going in there and voting blindly and thinking we're ever going to get anywhere not supporting our own efforts. Again, Malcolm X, the media is the most powerful entity on earth. They have the power to make the innocent guilty and make the guilty innocent, and that's power because they control the minds of the masses. Well, we are the media, and we need to expand the media, and that means you. You have an opportunity to join with us, not only in your donations, but contact the station, set up your own station in your own local area, and expand what we do there. Get your voice out there. Empower your children. Empower your old people. Empower your 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 uh, church people. Empower your business people. Empower your African scholars and commit scholars and empower your your whoever you've got. Empower people of color. This is the Black Talk Radio Network. Simply empower the people that look like you. They should be looking out for you. They should be thinking somewhat similar to how you think as we're all behind enemy lines in this domestic colony. So that's what it's all about. Visit blacktalkradionetwork.com and visit blacktalkmediaproject.org. Click on the donate tab, make a donation, make this thing happen, make this thing happen in a big way so we can take over, so we can get some power, so we can get up out of this mess. Nothing's going to change if you don't do something different. What do they say in the uh, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting some different result? When have we ever supported a Black Talk Radio Network before? When have we ever supported a national movement like this? When? I see Dr. Umar is working on getting the school going. And I've seen equal numbers of people that support and people that hate on what he's doing. Oh, he's misogynist. Oh, he doesn't want gay children. He doesn't want to teach uh, the kids to be gay. He doesn't want to support that. He's telling little girls they can't have weaves and perms, and he's trying to get black folks to, to be Afro-centered. And, and, and that just, you know, all these different things people are focused on. The man is at least trying to do something to start up something for black people. Because if you look at it, and this is something Scotty Reed pointed out to me, and, and I mean, it really is profound, man. It, it's been on my mind since we discussed it. The last generation of us teaching ourselves was after the Brown versus Board of Education. And we've been largely impotent ever since. We haven't had those same kind of leaders. We haven't had any Malcolm X's. We haven't had any more MLK's. We haven't had any real real leaders, real people actually looking out for black people, they've all been fringe at best. Dr. Colin Muhammad, Steve Coakley, there's dozens of others, but they haven't come to the national stage in front of blacks nationally. Dr. Amos Wilson, brilliant geniuses that have laid out the answers for us, given us the plans decades ago. But they struggled to get in front of the collective of black folks and make a difference. 
because largely black people are educated in white public school systems and don't even recognize what's best for them. We don't have our own propaganda. We don't produce our own information. We don't paint the picture of our own reality for ourselves. And largely, we appear to be afraid to even attempt to do such a thing. What I'm saying right now has a fair number of Negroes afraid. There's a fair number of black people that could hear what I'm saying right now and the hair standing up on their neck thinking, oof, man, they're going to get him. Just for what I'm saying right now. There's a whole lot of black people listening to what I'm saying right now and are thinking, where is this fool coming from? What is he talking about? All the people that died for us to have the opportunity and blah, 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 blah. And you're talking about a black? This is everybody. We all love each other and we got to do and, you know, we're lost. So as I said to begin with, if you love people, you love your family, you love your husband, you love your wife, you love your woman, you love your man, you love your children, you love your auntie, you love your cousin. That's your homie since y'all was kids. This is your homegirl. Y'all been tight since elementary school. That's your girl. That's your sore. It's your frat. Y'all nooped up. That's your boy. Then tell people where the flare has been set off at. This is where you can come and start getting it together. Because obviously you are all not doing it individually in your own little enclaves and corners. I'm not in a fraternity. So whatever you brothers is teaching each other to take over the world and fix our problems, you ain't reached out to me. I'm not in the black MBA of America Association. So whatever all y'all brilliant educated Negroes is doing, I'm not getting the memos. I'm not at the black PhD conference. So whatever all of you genius black folks, you talented 10th people that did you all these answers you have, you have not reached out to me. I can't find you. I can't come to your conference. The dope dealers that know all the answers and they just not going to participate in it. Y'all ain't hollered at me. I don't know what we planning to do to fix this situation because I'm seeing millions of us headed to the prison, to the plantation. The black entrepreneurs, the black business people that all we got to do is spend money with each other and everything will be fixed. When y'all going to holler at us? Because we're talking about slavery and it's a whole lot of people that would be doing business with you that's locked up. So this problem is affecting your bottom line too. Who else we got? What other little individual groups and broken off sections of the black community do we have that I haven't addressed? All I'm saying is you need to holler at us. We trying to holler at you. Return my emails. Come on the program. Talk to us. Let's work together to end slavery and everything we trying to do works better. Support the Black Talk Radio Network. You can put your same messages you talk about in your secret meetings out in front of tens of thousands of black people set up some kind of funding where you can help and contribute month to month and make sure that it continues to grow and everything you want to see happen will comes to pass but it starts with us so let's get to it let's do it let's make it happen let me give out the number again too because I go in and I forget to even tell you the number to the program 712-775-7035 
The access code is 367526-POUND. You hit star six and then one, and you will be in the caller's queue. I will see your name, your number pop up, and uh, we'll have you come in here and tell us what's on your mind. So before the uh, the break, we were discussing the difference in the Constitution and policing, and we were talking about uh, you know how right now people have much less freedom and protection from the policing as they did, you know, back in the days when we so-called built the country. We're talking about the difference in the, in uh, the way that England enforced the laws. And we were discussing that the castle doctrine or the idea that the home should be a place of peace and sanctuary is only violated in those times in the most extreme circumstances. And then we talk, start talking about how every incident where black folks is pulled over and stopped and frisked and door kicked in and everything else is an extreme circumstance so that's why you see all of this unexplainable black death and then we mentioned that uh, our unexplainable black death profile for today Iona Jones will be an example of these extreme circumstances he goes on to say today of course authorities can break into homes without knocking they can conduct raids at night if the fourth amendment is due to the founders offense at British soldiers forcibly entering homes in daylight hours after knocking and announcing the search for contraband it seems safe to say that the founders would be appalled by the fact that today, dozens of times each day, heavily armed government officials break into homes often at night without first knocking and announcing in order to conduct searches for contraband. I mean, this is the, that's, that's the long and the short of it right there. He just told you the country was founded off of people being outraged at the same things that people are sitting up watching now on policesnufffilms.com. We're sitting here watching the nightly news every night, seeing the exact same things that caused the forefathers to flip all the way the hell out and go to war. So when we talk about on this program or on, on other programs I'm associated with, when we get as, we go as far as to start asking people straight up, what is it going to take to change the situation? And then our own answers end up coming back to being, it's probably going to end up taking bloodshed. It's probably going to end up taking war. It's based on a historical precedent. It's not based on some kind of terroristic ideals or some desire to see people killed or see violence. Or, that has nothing to do with it. What it's based on is seen hundreds and hundreds of years of the worst treatment known in modern history and any history that's recorded anywhere. So you start with that as a base of kidnapping and enslavement and rape and torture and dismemberment and degradation and total separation from any identity of culture and religion and, and history, understanding of self, total psychological rape and, and dismemberment of the mind, of the soul, of the spirit of the individual, the total tearing off of heads of natural leaders that were born into the communities killed and, and made a bad example to terrorize the other people that would have followed these people to some margin of, of freedom fighting destroy them, destroy the hope of people when they can see an obvious leader killed and, and, and treated this way in front of the entire community and then have these grafted heads put on to fake leaders and then have them lead us into the direction further into slavery and to see this go on nonstop. To have the men tied up and watch the women be raped by every man that could come through and rape her. 
and then see the women tied up and they have to sit and watch the men be raped by every man that could come and rape them and then watch both of them tied up and watch the babies raped these are the foundations of the whole situation and then you advance a little bit further and you see how the people that founded this country went the hell off about having their doors kicked in went the hell off about being overtaxed about being over policed hell the first the revolutionary war itself basically came about from an unexplainable black death I mean more or less and I'm not saying that it was that Crispus the Tux was like fighting for black people necessarily from what I could discern of the history he somewhat considered himself to, to you know to be in the society but a British century, a cop of that time beat some kid down. That's what started it. Got into an argument, swung his musket, hit this kid upside the head. People came up and said, you know what, enough's enough of police brutality in our neighborhood. They called him to the floor like, enough. You can't just keep brutalizing people. You can't just keep raping people. You can't just keep destroying people and snatching people off and we don't know where they are and they just disappear from our community. I'm sure all the same dirty tactics were going on then as they are now. It's not like they got new ideas. They just do the same old stuff. And the people rose up and start coming around and here comes the militia, the local people coming with their muskets and their knives and whatever and clubs. And Christmas of Tux is right there in the lead. A black man. So we look at 1770 and the revolution starter kit from back then. And we look at today, which one of these people is going to be the one? Because we got thousands of them in the last couple of years. It was have been 300 and something people already in 2015 murdered by the police. I mean, Pick one that you want to be the one and you wouldn't be doing anything but honoring the forefathers of this country. The the whole idea that you can't even speak on this should make you want to fight for the opportunity to speak on it even more. Not make you back down as well. I don't want to be in the NDAA. I don't want to end up in the camp. I don't want to get indefinitely detained because I said I don't want DHS knocking on my door. I don't want uh, Eric Holder's community policing that he put out and told people to start snitching on people. I don't want that to affect me. So I'm going to just shut up. When you see this type of thing, you that should make, be like, wait a minute, you're declaring war on me. No, uh-uh, get that out of here. They can't just do it to you. That's why Obama signed the, the uh, NDAA. He signed that into effect at midnight, January 1. Everybody's out partying. Happy New Year's, and he's Happy New Year's signing this executive order, signing this into law. And you start off the new year, you can be indefinitely detained. It's legal now. So when you see these kind of things rising up, then we shouldn't be backing down. We should be standing up harder at it. And as, as this, as he's discussing, He's appropriately insists that a two-to-one Fourth Circuit ruling just this month that overturns a jury award of $250,000 
to the survivors of Andrew Cornish. He was shot and killed in May 2005 after a SWAT team from Cambridge, Maryland. Police force barged into his house 4.30 in the morning without knocking an anonymous tipster. It's always some anonymous tipster reported drug activity at the apartment where he lived and investigators had secured a warrant and after digging through the trash outdoor doors and finding two plastic bags with some marijuana residue on them. At the sound of the break-in, of course, he got up and walked out of his bedroom trying to protect himself. He had a knife that was still in its sheath. Police shot him in the face and in the forehead. That same Fourth Circuit Court ruling, two judges writing for the majority say Cornish caused his own death because he should have known that the people who invaded his house were the police. They said police raid homes at 4.30 a.m., for the very purpose of disorienting and confusing suspects. He should have known that it was the police that kicked in his door. And this is the reality that we're living in. As I've told you plenty of times before, it all starts with the poli- with the people who are policing us. That's where it all starts. Nobody ends up in prison without interaction with the police. This all stems from the 13th Amendment in the exception clause that's found in there. Okay, we discussed that. And the police are the primary enforcers of the exception in the 13th Amendment. That is their primary job. Enforce the 13th. Get us slaves. Go out there and use that 13th Amendment to get us new slaves. Generate us some revenue. And while you're getting money, out of them fighting these charges and fighting against and trying to pay and while you're getting that money just keep on sliding them on down the grease slide there till they end up on the plantation then we can really get them because then they're going to have a couple of years worth of daily labor for pennies on the dollar 70 cents a day, a dollar a day and we've cut out all the overhead for our Wall Street operations McDonald's where we used to have to pay people $7 an hour to make these doggone uniforms. And they needed health insurance and vacation and they wanted a piece of the 401k and trying to take sick leaves. And man, we had to pay to train them and had to pay when they leave exit interviews. We had to have workman's comp insurance on this. We had to have all kind of fees and stuff we had to pay just to be even be able to do business legally in America. This is this is ridiculous. Get us some slaves. So that's what they do. They go get them slaves so they don't have to pay any of those things. They use you and me and everybody we know that goes in and out of the jail system and ends up in the prison system for whatever reasons. They use us. The failure of lawyers is a tragedy in two parts. First, there has been an intellectual failure of the profession to scrutinize the evidentiary and logical foundations of modern policing and mass incarceration. Second, the profession has failed in every practice, in everyday practice, to ensure that the contemporary criminal legal system functions consistently with our rights and values. So now we're ready to make the turn. Now we're going to talk about the legal community's obligation to uphold the Constitution and to control the police. This is the Abolitionist Daily. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to to make the turn.
Before the break, we uh, began to discuss the legal community's obligations in all of this. As a profession, as, as professionals, as experts in the law, they're failing us. It's, just, it's that simple. They're failing us. And I can say that as an abolitionist, having been in the movement now for a few years, having been here in the front lines, as far as I know, if there's a, a fronter line, then... Let me know and we'll move on up to it. We need to be at the tip of the sword. We're trying to be at the forefront of the conversation to, to break out the truth, to help the people to the light, come out of the darkness. So if there's a, a more of a forefront in this battle, then please somebody contact us and let us know because we need to follow what you're talking about. But as far as we can see, we're out here. We're putting it out there. And what we are discussing, we're finding in cases Again and again and again, the legal community doesn't even know that the 13th Amendment exception allowed for slavery to continue. They don't even know this information. You could tell when a person doesn't know. You know when somebody's lying and they knew and they just didn't care or they were profiting. That's one thing. But the dozens of people that we discuss this with, they never even had it discussed with them. People pass the bar exam. People spend for their degrees and whatnot all through school $100,000 and spend all these thousands to take the bar and don't even know the most basic principle of human life here in America that we're all underneath the same slave system as has ever been if any of those attorneys gets convicted of a crime they can be made a slave So like I said, now we're making the turn. He says, when I read the Department of Justice uh, scathing report about Ferguson, Missouri, and how the police there were routinely harassing uh, black people to add more money to the town's coffers, I was reminded of a similar report the DOJ wrote about New Orleans four years ago. That report didn't accuse the police here as being driven by money, but it did say that it arrested so many more black youths than white youths that a disparity couldn't plausibly be explained with statistics with the varying rates of those demographics and how they commit crimes. So, as we've said on this program plenty of times, Ferguson is America. We have a whole new series now on New Abolitionist Radio, where that's exactly what we point out. So far, we've covered Alaska, Alabama, and last week we covered Arizona, and we show you clearly. And we're just going to go through the 50 states in alphabetical order. We're just going to continue to show you clearly, state to state to state, Ferguson is America, policing for profit, racial profiling, continued pattern and practice of, of, of racist violations of people's constitutional rights is the norm. This all feeds slavery. People, it's to the point now that you're, I was going to say it, it's to the point you're not going to dispute this. 
It simply cannot be proven in any other way if you are looking at the information. If you're coming from your fields, if you're stuck in the kumbaya reality and you believe that the love is going to take over and if we just rally behind one another, brother, sister, I love you. I don't, I'm not racist. I don't have any problems with race. I don't see color. God loves us all. We all bleed red. We're all Americans. Um, it's us against the Illuminati. It's us against the reptilians. Let me see. What else is there? Um, there's a whole list of them. Everything people say other than, you know what? You're right. Slavery is real. And this country is perpetuating this ongoing criminal enterprise against people of color primarily and poor people most definitely against across all ethnicities. And this is affecting my ability to have a job. This is affecting my tax base. This is affecting crime in my, in my community. This is destroying my country. Now, see, that's what you need to say. Not, well, if we hold hands and if we love our way out of it, you're not about to love your way out of this. I'm, you know, I'll put it, whatever I got up against whatever you got. We'll just see who wins. If you don't want to be with me, you're against me. As I say, you ride with us or collide with us because I'm going forward with this and I know what I'm talking about is right. You're not going to dispute these numbers. You're not going to dispute these legal precedents. You're not going to dispute history. You're not going to dispute government. You're not going to dispute business practices. You're not going to dispute billions and billions of dollars people are generating. You're not going to dispute all of this mountain of facts. You're just going to give me your feelings about the situation. You're just going to try to sell me hopes and dreams. You want me to start looking for unicorns with you. Was it a TLC? Don't go chasing waterfalls. You know, it's like you, you want me to get into this with you. You want me to put my blinders on like a good little horse and just let them lead me with the bit. You want to put a bit in my mouth so I shut up and you just lead me to go whatever way you need me to go so we don't even have to address these problems. But it's not going to happen. This is real and it affects every last one of us and it most definitely affects the future in my children. Until until I'm dead and gone, I'm going to teach them how to fight against this. And I'm going to fight it until there's no breath left in me. I'm going to continue to present this information. The man just told you. Ferguson was already proven to you about New Orleans, but see, you didn't give a damn about New Orleans because that's a bunch of Negroes down there. We saw the Katrina. You see all them black folks out there broken. What do we need them for? All them dilapidated houses and Negroes living in poverty. When Katrina happened, let me tell you what I saw in Katrina. My personal experience of what went down in Katrina. When Katrina went down, I was selling uh, selling cars. I, I worked for a, a Ford dealership. And that dealership is the largest, I'm not saying one of, the largest fleet vehicle sales businesses in the country. I mean, straight up, every Ford van truck used for cable companies, uh, phone companies, uh, municipal ambulance companies, every police car, state trooper, sheriff's crown, Victoria. I'm talking about uh, like millions and millions of vehicles had to pass through our dealership's fleet organization. So they had a lot of revenue coming through there. We did a lot of fleet business. 
And I sold a lot of fleet vehicles to people I knew that had businesses. Guys I know with construction companies. Guys coming in buying two or three one-ton trucks at a time and buying cab chassis for, for work vehicles and this type of stuff or whatever. So I've been knowing these guys, not just in business. Some of them I knew from high school days before they took over their dad's businesses or before they started up their own businesses out of college and had all this revenue generating and creating jobs for their community and all of these things began to happen. I, I knew a lot of these individuals. And when Katrina started going down, I reached out to all of them. I felt I was naive. I was ignorant. This is before I knew about, you know, the abolitionist situation or whatever and, and really was putting together the pieces of slavery. I didn't, I really was blind in these years of my life. I really didn't see it. Of course, I knew there was racism and white supremacy was the rule of the day. I knew that clearly. But I just didn't know the systems as well as I understand them now. And I reached out to all of these people. And like I said, I've been knowing some of these guys, you know, 20 years. Go out to eat with some of them. I mean, know their kids, families, watch them get married, the whole nine yards. And I reached out to these people. I said, man, why don't we do something? How can we reach out? How can we get down there, man? They talking about they need you know, bulldozers and tractors and, and trucks. And, you know, I knew a guy that owned a, a dump truck company. They they did a lot of asphalt work, but a lot of hauling and that type of stuff or whatever, too. And they, he had like six dump trucks. And I'm just like, dude, there's got to be something we can do, man. I'll go, I'll whatever. I can take off, you know, at least a couple weeks and let's go down there and go do something, man. Do you see what's happening down here? Do you know how many stone face cold what the hell are you talking about looks I got from people that I thought I knew do you know that out of no matter how many people I talk to and I continue to expand my search for somebody that wanted to, to get involved and do something that I found nothing and no one black white whatever I found no one and it kind of broke my heart. I mean, like, damn, I see these people. I see what's going on. We had a flood here in Kansas City back in the early 90s. I damn near lost my life in it. Young and dumb, didn't know no better. The first night that the flood, you know, waters crested and went up over the over the uh, the, the river banks or whatever, the, and the, the, the way that they hold it, the levees here in Kansas City, um, the first night it actually went, you know, became like real flood waters in the downtown areas. I worked overnight. So I didn't know, you know, I get off work at three in the morning or something and I'm trying to get to the highway. And I, I just, it didn't make sense to me. I had seen it raining for several days. I really wasn't paying attention. I was young, 19, had a fast car and, you know, a young man running, ripping and running, doing whatever. And I really wasn't paying attention. In the middle of the night, I got off work. I started trying to drive down one street I normally took to get to the highway and it was blocked off. So it didn't mean anything to me. I thought construction made another turn, went down another street. And, you know, I pride myself on knowing the city inside out. You know, I can take the back streets and the alleyways and, you know, whatever, that type of thing. And uh, I found myself, you know, another street, and it's blocked off. I'm like, damn, man, I got to get to – I'm trying to get home. And I just – it never clicked. I never saw any water because it's pitch black. In a lot of areas, the power was actually off. Street lights were off. So I didn't see any water. I just saw these yellow or orange and white uh, barriers put up in different streets. Well, I found myself a series of alleyways and back streets to finally go down until I was steady trying to get to this highway so I can get home. 
in my young, silly, ignorant self, I drove dead square into flood water up to the, the window of the car, like the pad, like the, the side window. That's before I realized I was in water. Like I wasn't flying going fast. I was driving fairly slow, maybe 30 miles an hour. But hell, when you run into a wall of water, that's fast enough. I drove my car right into the water and I looked to the side and I could see the water like up midway at the, at the window. And I had to try to back out and the car was flooding, you know, was dying out and I'm steadily starting to try to back up because I couldn't open it. I mean, I didn't know what to do. I panicked. Somebody came driving down behind me. These guys, they come and they want to try to tow me out. And so we got the car out or whatever. But my point is I've been in a flood and I damn near literally lost my life. At 3 a.m., nobody would have known. I just wouldn't have made it home from work, and they would have been like, well, where is he at? And they would have been shocked to find out that I was the guy that I could have easily died in the flood that night. So maybe it just made an impact on me that when I saw Katrina, I immediately wanted to do something. And I was shocked to see how many people didn't give a damn. Well, now today, fast forward, and I'm looking at the Black Lives Matter, and I just watched this video about this uh, Black Brunch where, you know, the black folks go out. Well, it's not even just black folks. It's, a, you know, all kinds of colors of people, you know, different nationalities. But it's mostly black people. And, of course, they're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And they go in and they raid these, these uh, you know, eating establishments at brunch, I guess, you know, whatever. And they go in and they they surround all this, the seating. They go walk and they, they wrap around the walls, the outer walls of the eating areas. And it's all white people sitting there eating that you see, you know, in the particular video I saw, it's probably a couple hundred people in this restaurant. And it's this all this group of people all dressed in black and they start chanting and saying the names and how they were killed and saying we demand justice and we demand, you know, and Black Lives Matter. And they got their whole thing laid out on their little cue cards and they're all reading it in, in system together and it's all going in sync and it's, you know, it's it's strong. I mean, it, it it's, it's, it's strong. I'll give them that. I, but it's the craziest thing to sit there and watch that all of these people could give a damn. I mean, if you don't see anything else in that video, you see the clear and present obviousness of people not giving a damn. Some of them get up and leave. They are complaining. They want these people to shut up and get out their face. And they flat do not care. And then before they finish, you know, what they're doing after they've read all these, they read off dozens of names of, you know, and dates and what happened and whatever. And they're like, you know, we deserve justice for Eric Garner, you know, 42 years old, killed by New York police, da, 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 da. We deserve justice for Oscar Grant, 23 years old, killed by police and da, 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 da. You know, they just name the name and name for like five minutes of just names. And then at the end, they say, if you believe in justice, then stand stand up stand with us right now <sighs> and people put their hands down and put their fork back in their noodles and kept on going like if you don't get the hell out of here people what I need you to understand is that if you hear this and if you do care you are the exception and not the rule. It's pretty much basically just that. That's all we got. Like, if you care, you're like one in a hundred that cares. 
We've seen it in Katrina. We've seen it in the earthquakes in Haiti. We saw it as America sat and watched Rwanda in the genocide there, a CIA created and facilitated genocide there in millions of a million people floating in the rivers and dead bodies and babies left wandering around. Everybody they know hacked to pieces and killed and dead. I mean, the things that we watch, the, the Serbia, the genocide over there, the rape, these things that we're watching. And so now they've shown us an international picture of genocide and of all these horrors in just the last 15 to 20 years. And they've numbed us because now that we realize what's going on in our own country, our own current genocide, now we're numb. Now we're disconnected from our humanity. We had to somehow as a collective group disassociate ourselves from our humanity to be able to tolerate watching what was going on in Haiti on the news and not get up and do something to watch what happened in Rwanda on the news every night and not get up and do something to watch what happened with Bosnia and not get up and do something to watch tens of thousands of people hundreds of thousands of people completely blown off the planet somehow collectively we had to just unplug and then the light bulbs start going off while we're watching Rwanda the prison population has gone from 200,000 in 1989 to 400,000 in 1991 and to 600,000 in 1995 to 800,000 in 1997 to a million in 2000 to a million five in 2005 to a million seven in 2008 to 2 million in 2010 to 2.2 million in 2012 to 2.4 million in 2015 and it's just a steady incremental increase in the heat of the water and we don't realize we're being boiled So like he said here in the, in the article, they already showed you New Orleans is Ferguson. Before Ferguson, they already showed you New Orleans what's going on. State to state to state. How many justice reports is it going to take? We talked about Alabama, people being held in jail for unpaid tickets. Probation, debtors' prison situations. We discussed it in depth here. They've told you about the police raids. We've told you about the policing and, and the separation from the Constitution to what's going on with the actual policing. Well, you want to talk about police and what the police are willing to do to people? How about the story of Khalif Browder? This is what the police do. This is what the courts do. This is what the jails do. In the early hours of Saturday, May 15, 2010, 10 days before his 17th birthday, Khalif Browder, a friend, and a friend were returning home from a party in the Belmont section of the Bronx. They walked along Arthur Avenue, the main street of Little Italy, past bakeries and cafes with their metal shutters pulled down for the night. As they passed East 136th Street, 
or is it 186th Street? Sorry, Browder saw a police car driving toward him. More squad car, co- more squad cars arrived, and soon Browder and his friend found themselves squinting in the glare of a police spotlight. An officer said that a man had just reported that they had robbed him. I didn't rob anybody, Browder replied. You can check my pockets. The officers searched him and his friend, but found nothing. As Browder recalls, one of the officers walked back to his car where the alleged victim was and returned with a new story. The man said that they had both robbed him, not that night, but two weeks earlier. The police handcuffed the teens and pressed them into the back of a squad car. What am I being charged for, Browder asked. I didn't do anything. Here, members of the officer telling him, we're just going to take you to the precinct. Most likely, you can go home. Browder whispered to his friend, are you sure you didn't do something? His friend insisted that he didn't. At the 48th precinct, the pair were fingerprinted and locked in a holding cell. A few hours later, when an officer opened the door, Browder jumped up. I can leave now? Instead, the teens were taken to central booking at the Bronx County Criminal Court. Browder had already had a few run-ins with the police, including an incident eight months earlier when a police officer reported seeing him take a delivery truck for a joyride and crash it into a parked car. Browder was charged with grand larceny. He told me that his friends drove the truck and that he had only watched, but he figured that he had no defense, so he just pleaded guilty. The judge gave him probation and youthful, youthful offender status, which ensured that he wouldn't have a criminal record. Late on Saturday, 17 hours after the police picked him up, an officer and a prosecutor interrogated him, and he again maintained his innocence. The next day, he was led into a courtroom where he learned that he had been charged with robbery, grand larceny, and assault. The judge released his friend, permitting him to remain free while the case moved through the courts. But because Browder was still on probation, the judge ordered him to be held and set bail at $3,000. The amount, which was out of reach for the family, and soon Browder found himself aboard a Department of Corrections bus. He fought back panic. Staring through the grating on the bus window, he watched the Bronx disappear soon. There was water on either side as the bus made its way across a long, narrow bridge to Rikers Island. Of the 8 million people living in New York City, some 11,000 are confined in the city's jails on any given day, most of them on Rikers, a 400-acre island in the East River between Queens and Bronx. New Yorkers who have never visited often think of Rikers as a single, terrifying building, but the island has 10 jails, eight for men, one for women, and one so decrepit that it hasn't housed anyone since 2000. Male adolescents are being confined in the Robert N. DeVorne Center, known as the RNDC. When Browder arrived, the jail held some 600 boys, aged 16 to 18. Conditions there are notoriously grim. In August of this year, or 2014, a report by the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York described the RNDC as a place with deep-seated culture of violence, where attacks by officers and among inmates are rampant. The The report featured a list of inmate injuries, broken jaws, broken orbital bones, broken noses, long bone fractures, and lacerations requiring stitches. Browder's family could not afford to hire an attorney, so the judge appointed a lawyer named Brendan O'Meara to represent him. Browder told O'Meara that he was innocent and assumed that his case would conclude quickly. Even the district attorney handling the, the prosecution later acknowledged in court papers that it was a relatively straightforward case. There weren't hours of wiretaps or piles of complicated evidence to sift through, there was just the memory of one alleged victim. But Browder had entered the legal system through the Bronx criminal courts, which are chronically overwhelmed. One reason 
is because of the budget. There's not nearly enough judges and court staff to handle the workload. In 2010, Browder's case was one of 5,695 felonies that the Bronx District Attorney's Office prosecuted. The problem is compounded by defense attorneys who drag out cases to improve their odds of winning, judges who permit endless adjournments, and prosecutors who are perpetually unprepared. Although the Sixth Amendment guarantees the right to a speedy and public trial, in the Bronx, the concept of speedy justice barely exists. For as long as Browder had remembered, he had lived in the same place, a two-story brick house near the Bronx Zoo. He was the youngest of several seven siblings, except for the oldest. All the children were adopted, and the mother fostered other children as well. Khalif was the last brought into the family. Overall, his mother had raised a total of 34 kids. As a child, he loved Pokemon, WWE, blah, 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 all this stuff, whatever. But inside the RNDC, he soon realized that he was not going to make any friends. He assigned himself, he was assigned to a dorm where about 50 teenage boys slept in an open room, each with a plastic bucket to store their possessions in. The conversations bored me, he told me. As far as he could tell, the other inmates were interested only in the crimes they had committed and what girls they had slept with. When Browder asked the guard how many how inmates were supposed to get their clothes clean, he was told that they had to wash them themselves. He thought this was a joke until he noticed other inmates scrubbing the clothes by hand using a bucket and jailhouse soap. After he did the same and hung his wet clothes on the rail of his bed, he wound up with brown rust stains on his white clothes. His mother visited every weekend. In the visiting room, he would hand her dirty clothes and get a sack of freshly laundered clothes in return. She also put money in a jail commissary account for him so he could buy snacks. He knew that such privileges made him a target for fellow prisoners who would take any opportunity to empty someone's bucket of snacks and clothes, so he slept with his head off the side of his bed resting on top of his bucket. To survive in the RNDC, he decided that the best strategy was to keep to himself and to start working out. He said everywhere he went and every every day he did pull-ups and push-ups. He decided he had to get big. So he started to look at how he can defend himself and protect himself. A 16-year-old kid, mind you. Never been in real trouble. He said the incident where he got in trouble before, he didn't do that. He was just around his friends who did it, and they tried to charge him with something, and he just took the plea. Like, well, whatever. I didn't do anything, but I'll just take it. As long as they said they weren't going to put it on his record, but he put himself in the system, so he's already made himself a target because he didn't fight it. Once you're in that system, it's just like having a DUI on your tag or something. If they pull you over, they're going to pull you over to check and see are you drunk this time so he goes on to talk about how he had to fight with these kids and work out every day and try to gain weight and fighting and fighting for his life literally day in day out all the time is passing he finally got indicted criminal complaint alleged that he and his friend had robbed a Mexican immigrant named Roberto Batista, pursuing him, pushing him against a fence, and taking his backpack. Batista told the police that his backpack, backpack contained a credit card, a debit card, a digital camera, an iPod Touch, and $700 in cash. Browder was also accused of punching Batista in the face. A clerk read out the charges, robbery in the second degree, and other crimes, and asked Browder, how do you plead, sir, guilty or not guilty? Not guilty is what he said, of course. The officer escorted him out of the courtroom and back downstairs to return to Rikers, and it no longer mattered whether his mother could find the money to bail him out. The Department of Probation had filed a violation of probation against him, which is the standard procedure when someone on probation is indicted on a, on a new violent felony. And the judge had remanded him without bail. 
He repeatedly told Omer, which is his court-appointed lawyer, that he would never plead guilty and that he wanted to go to trial. Omer assumed that his courtroom defense would be, listen, they got the wrong kid. After all, the accusation had been made a week or two after the alleged robbery, and the victim had later changed his mind when it occurred. The original police report said on or about May 2nd, but then he later, Batista later told the cops it was May 8th. Uh, with each day he spent in jail, Browder imagined that he was getting closer to trial. Many states have so-called speedy trials, which require trials uh, to start within a certain time frame. But New York State's version is slightly different and is known as the ready rule. This rule stipulates that all felony cases except homicides must be ready for trial within six months of arraignment or else the charges can be dismissed. In practice, however, this time limit is subject to technicalities. The clock stops for many reasons. For example, when defense attorneys submit motions before trial so that the amount of time that is officially held to have elapsed can be wildly different from the amount of time that he really has. In 2011, 74% of felony cases in the Bronx were older than six months. So that's what leads us into the story of talking about with what de Blasio has going on. Says Mayor de Blasio's plan to shrink Rikers' population is to tackle court delays. There's a rare consensus among inmate advocates and correction officials that the surest way to fix the Rikers Island jail complex is to empty it. But while Mayor de Blasio of New York is not prepared to go that far, he will introduce a plan today to gradually reduce inmate population at Rikers Island by clearing the backlogs at the state courts. Such backlogs can keep people locked away for hundreds of days while they await trial. As of late March, over 400 people have been locked up for more than two years without being convicted of any crimes. According to city data, that's, that's going to be released for the first time. And there are currently a half a dozen people at Rikers who have been waiting on pending cases for more than six years. So we're going to take a break here, and uh, when we get back, we're going to wrap up Khalif's story and uh, talk about what de Blasio's plan is to end this. I mean, obviously, you can't have people sitting in jail for six years still waiting for a trial. That's ridiculous, but it is what goes on. You're listening to the Abolitions Daily. This is Johan and Elia. We will be right back. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network for live programming schedules. Visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we are back to the Abolitionist Daily. This is Johan and Elia here on the Black Talk Radio Network. The phone lines are open. It's area code 712-775-7035. The participant code you can put in is 367-526-POUND. It's star six and one, and you will be on the air with us. Uh, before the break, we were merging these two stories of uh, young brother Khalif Browder, who I've mentioned many times, and I felt like it was finally time to give you uh, his actual story as opposed to just referencing him and just telling you, you know, what happened um, with this young man. He spent three years on Rikers Island accused of something he never did. And um, it took him three years to finally just release him. Uh, they never were able to put together a case against him and never, but he didn't have bail money to get himself out. So this is how he spent his years from 16 to, to uh, nearly 19 years old is at Rikers Island. And this is common practice, as I just told you before the break. There are thousands of people who go in and out of these jails who end up spending all this time there and never 
get to trial and it, it never get a speedy trial and go months and months and months. And in some cases, people that have been there for years, six years of being in Rikers and you still haven't had your case. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. So back to uh, Khalif Browder's story. In order for a trial to start, both the defense attorney and the prosecutor have to declare that they are ready. This is the, the ready rule. The court clerk then searches for a trial judge who is free and transfers the case, and jury selection can begin. Not long after Browder was indicted, an assistant district attorney sent the court a notice of readiness stating that, that the people are ready for trial. The case was put on the calendar for a possible trial on December 10th, but it did not start that day. On January 28th of the you know next month, uh, Browder's 258th day in jail. He was brought back to the courthouse once again. This time, the prosecutor said the people are not ready. We're requesting one week. The next court date set by the judge was March 9th. That's not a week away. That's six weeks away. As it happened, Browder didn't get to trial any time in that entire year. The dates go as follow. June 23rd, people not ready, request another week. Well, August 24th, people not ready, request one day. Next court date, November 4th. They requested one more day to get ready. He didn't go back to court until November. August goes into September, and then September goes into October. And then you get November. They asked for one day, he got four more months added to his sentence. That he wasn't even sentenced. He wasn't even convicted. November 4th, people not ready, prosecutor on trial. The prosecutor's busy, he's doing something else. He can't handle that case right now, so give us two more weeks. Well, December, next month. Prosecutor on trial, request January 3rd. And on and on and on. The Bronx courts are so clogged that when a lawyer asks for one week adjournment, the next court date usually doesn't happen for six weeks or more. As long as the prosecutor has filed a notice of readiness, however, delays caused by court congestion don't count toward the number of days that are officially held to have elapsed. It's like this person's not living. Now are you starting to understand how when I tell you the facts of the matter are that 94% of state cases are resolved with a conviction based on a plea agreement and 97% of federal cases are resolved with a conviction based on a plea agreement as opposed to people going to trial. Are you, still, are you seeing now how that's the case? How much time do you have to give? Especially if you haven't done anything. Especially if what you've been you've been arrested for is some petty, nonviolent, victimless BS having to do with possessing marijuana. They think you're trying to sell weed. They're getting you in some kind of criminal conspiracy because somebody came to your house and they found a baggie in your trash that had marijuana residue so we're going to put you on a case for uh, conspiring to distribute and here's some paraphernalia and, and when the police kicked in the door you were trying to open the door at the same time and the door kicked back and hit one of them in the knee so now that's an assault on an officer so we got you with four felonies but 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 you know two years later but here's the deal if you can last two years it's, it's, Six weeks later, there's your jobs gone. 
A month later, job's gone. Two weeks later, how long do you have that you could miss work? Because you're in jail. How many people do you know? How many do you think that you yourself right now, as great as you are, with as good a job as you got, and slavery don't mean nothing to you, and abolitionism is a silly waste of time, and people need to grow up and get over it and move on and be a part of the system and, and, and pay your taxes and, and do your thing and be a man and be a woman and, and stand up for your children and set a good example and all this other crap people talk, then you tell me how much time can you miss from work? You get pulled over for your brake light don't work. Oh, you never got around to fixing it. You you meant to fix it, you just forgot. And then, and then you got a guy like the cop that killed Walter Scott. Pulls up behind you. Hey, just want to let you know your brake light's out. Uh, you got your license registration? Oh, yeah, sure, I got it. Whoa, what are you reaching for? Boom. Okay, that's one scenario. Say he doesn't shoot you. Oh, what do you get? Your license registration? Yeah, I do. Yeah, you got your insurance? Sure. Oh, this is out of date. Um, well, let me give you this. Well, no, 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 I got old. We start arguing. Can you get out of the car? Okay, now you get arrested. How long can you take? You haven't done anything, but he's looking to make revenue off of you. So this, here comes the tickets, and the charges start getting piled on you. you got to go to jail so he can write out all these tickets and give you. How long do you have that you can miss work? You could, you could probably get away with taking some vacation days. If you've been good, you haven't missed, they like you. You can probably get away with calling your boss, your immediate supervisor. You probably got a decent enough relationship if they don't hate you and don't haven't been waiting to stab you in the back. You could probably reach your your family somehow and have them call. Oh yeah, he wanted me to ask for you, and then somehow you can tell him, hey man, ugh, I'm in the mix of a, I got a thing. I got a I don't know, but I'm gonna get out and whatever. Well, they ain't gonna fire you that day probably. Oh, but now you're in there and you got a few charges you didn't know. You didn't realize it was a problem coming your way. Now, well, hell, you don't have the bill. You don't have $2,000. You don't have $5,000. You don't have $10,000. I mean, you don't know what the bail is going to be. You don't have the cash. Now you're a few more days trying to figure out how to get that bail money together. You're in a situation like this, young man. He was minding his own business. They threw him in the jail over nothing. This is your kid. How long can your kid stay in jail? If it's not you, how long can your son, your teenage son? My kids walk home from school, walk back and forth to school from time to time, participate in extracurricular events and whatnot. I don't always know exactly where they are. I'm doing this or I'm doing my work. So I can't make it to every game or track me to do whatever they're doing. Sometimes they ride the bus back, and I wonder about it. I think about it, and they ride the bus back to their school, and then got to get a ride back from the school back to the house. And I mean, they're within walking distance, so I think about it to myself every single time. I say my prayer, and I keep my positive mind going, and I and I shut out the thoughts that the possibility is there. Does some cop just, hey, kid? And he don't know how to answer. He don't know what to say. He's got a somewhat of a fear because he, I mean, wouldn't no matter what I tell him, he sees all the dead bodies piling up. He's got a little bit of a fear of the cop. Cop feeds off that. If he, you know, doesn't just immediately attack him. We've seen in America, people can just make anonymous 911 calls and say, there's a black person in my neighborhood and he looks menacing. Somebody calls and says, God forbid, there's a black kid or there's a black man. 
you know our, our sons are barrel chested and broad shouldered and standing tall and you know so they look like grown men at 11 and 12 and 13 years old they look like grown men they look like they could be potentially thugs so it takes a phone call and cop comes down expecting trouble you don't even know your child's gone like in Khalif Browder's situation they didn't even know he was in jail they just knew he didn't come home from school he didn't come they didn't know where he was and it just keeps going prosecutors ready oh well now we can't I got a trial oh give me a day okay well six weeks later Okay, okay, I'm ready. Well, no, I can't yet. I gotta do, I can't be ready. Uh, give me, give me another week. Alright, six months later. And you're trying to raise the bail to get your kid out. It's a serious situation, people. It's not just some ranting and I'm just crazy and I just gotta, you know, bug up my butt to be mad at the law or whatever. It's a serious problem. You got the mayor of New York City working on a program that he's going to debut today and we'll talk about it on tomorrow's show once it's all laid out there but what he's proposing reflects an acknowledgement at City Hall that making lasting reforms at Rikers will require looking beyond the jail complex itself to make changes to a criminal justice system the top officials now say has become too dependent on incarceration. Under the proposal, officials hope to shrink the inmate population at city jails by 25% over the next 10 years. Given recent history, that would be a modest reduction. In the past two decades, the number of inmates on any given day has already decreased from over a high of over 20,000 to about 10,000 people a day. This is due in part to declining crime rates, of course, and recent attempts to divert low-level offenders with those mental and those with mental illnesses into rehabilitative programs. City officials believe that the Rikers population can and should be reduced further, but in taking aim at backlogs in courts across New York's five boroughs, the city is, is trying to tackle a problem that has frustrated past improvement efforts. Elizabeth Glazer, the mayor's criminal justice coordinator, said that a culture of delay in the court's has kept defendants languishing in jail, eroding confidence in the justice system. You're damn right it does. All it takes is knowing these stories are real. All it takes is knowing a few people that have dealt with this or hearing about this. You work at a job. You find out about this guy's last job he lost because, hell, I was at, man, they picked me up on a BS open container, quality of life, broken windows charge, open container, Assembling in a, in a mob, three of us were standing talking to each other in front of the store on the corner. They stopped and frisked us, and I had a damn $10 bag of weed in my pocket. I smelled like marijuana. I mean, whatever kind of puny, crazy stuff that people get, this is the reality of the truth. All it takes is you knowing this is what's going on in your neighborhoods, like the kids said at the beginning of all this. Well, those are the jump-out cops, so they can just stop us and do whatever, like I told you a few weeks ago about the kids in D.C. They all acknowledge as teen kids that the government can just do this to you. It's fine. Oh, yeah, it happens all the time, man. Oh, well, no, they never arrested us. They never got anything off of us, but they come through every day pretty much. On the way home from school, we get stopped by the police and patted down and threatened. But, I mean, that's just how it is here. And people that know people and people that are, that are the people that have been in jail for weeks and months and years 
and never were successfully charged with anything. And people that have lost job after job and have lost relationships and families and homes and cars all over the country behind this type of foolishness. If this system worked and, and made any sense, then there would be something in place where you could stop this from happening to people. It wouldn't be happening in the first place. These would be anomalies. These would be these crazy outlier situations that, like, what the, how did that happen? And you would immediately be able to go to it, fix it, move on. But it's not like that. The system is made like this. It's designed like this. It's designed to break people. Break your pockets, break your spirit, break your mind, break your home, break your family, break your relationships. It's what it's designed to do. To depower you, to power you down, to suck the power out of you, take the life out of you, take the spirit out of you, the energy out of you. So you'll give in because they want you to be a slave. What's, what's the more likely for a person to be a slave? Somebody that you can get them in a situation where they lose their job, they're already check to check, lose their car, lose their asset collateral, lose their relationships. Now you look irresponsible, you look like a criminal. Who's going to believe your story? you got to go pretty far to find somebody who loves you enough to listen to a story from you that has to do with your being in jail and you need help. Not a whole lot of people are really on that. Hell, I was just listening to one of these uh, young rappers the other day. Just, I don't know, I, sometimes I try to break up the seriousness of all these things. I'll listen to different people talk about stuff. But this guy happens to be, you know, a fairly well-known young rapper. And he's talking about his court cases and, and stuff. Since he came off the streets, and I don't know if he was saying he was actually selling drugs. I think he said he was always trying to sell, like, mixtapes and trying to get his music out to people. And so he he had built up a strong base in his city where he lives in Philadelphia, he had built up a pretty strong base for some years. YouTube videos he created for himself and put himself out there. And, you know, he had a, he, he said at the time when he actually signed a deal and became like a major artist, he had already made about three or $400,000 just of his own self. And he got into some kind of legal trouble. And, um, you know, they were trying to keep him from, from getting out of the city, like moving on or whatever, to, to like get him in the, in the system. Because they felt like he represented crime and he represented the thugs and, you know, this image that he, they wanted him like the local police officer. He told a very detailed story and he also explained that it's one of his rules that people that hang around with him, you need to be at those court days. What are you, my crew, my entourage? You want to take the trips? You want to ride on the jet? He's, I get on the jet on my tour or whatever and then it's a 20 seat jet every seat's full but I go to court and it's like two people there and people overslept and they forgot and then they had to go the car broke down and all these stories it's like, so I have, I'm happy when I see people don't support me in these situations so I just cut them right out because you gotta be with me going through this so if this is a person with money and dealing with this and fame and all the trappings and the girls and the money and the fun and the whatever what about you and me? Who's coming? Who's going to look out for you? Who's going to come support you? Who's going to put up their house to get you out? I hope it's not, you just think it's just scare tactics and I'm just talking crazy to try to make you feel in fear. They're looking at how to change the system finally. How many 
hundreds of thousands and even millions of people have been victimized by this system for de Blasio to be coming out now and even talking about how to try to stop what has been going on why do you think the culture devolves into what it becomes the other story talking about New Orleans he's been Ferguson in New Orleans for decades why do you think communities that are being raped being subjugated being decimated economically marginalized beyond any imagination you can't even imagine how bad these people are being destroyed left with no options what's going on in Detroit for the last several years is an international human rights crisis but America puts the veil over it and said, we got it, don't worry about it, we got it under control. We send in these people and we send in those people and we talk about it from this and we're fixing it. No, 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 don't worry about that. Let's look over to Yemen because those people, I heard those people are suffering over there. Let's go over to Libya because we heard that there's some rebels over there that, uh, that, that are saying that, um, Gaddafi is abusing them and treating them bad. Um, let's, let's, um, you know what, let's go to Iraq because those people are being persecuted. They invaded uh, somebody else's country. We got to go over there and fix those problems. And on and on and on, country after country. It's like 140 conflicts going on right now that America's front and center. And right here in our country, it's just shambles. It's falling apart. It's sand going through your fingers. The people don't have anything, and these systems are in place to rip them apart to just completely destroy them they're, they're, how are they going to survive so like I said with the judges they come out and give their report they're coming out now and starting to say that they realize the problem they see what the issue is but the judges are largely being cut out of the situation. I mean, what can they do? Because when you've got 97% of federal cases going to plea deals, like we told you on the program before, the judge said straight up, look, man, we don't see witnesses. We don't hear witness testimony. We don't see evidence. We just see prosecutors coming up smiling with a plea deal in their hand, and we got to sign off on it because the person is being accused of the crime is agreeing to take these terms without any of these other things. So the constitutional right to a trial is is a myth. This is the judges saying this to their own selves. And one of these judges says, in a period when much of the legal establishment was reacting negatively to what it perceived as the lawless excesses of the late 60s. This former head of the New York uh, Bar Association, this Mr. Plimpton, not only embraced a very broad view of the role of the lawyer in society, but also saw the role as one of promoting change and progress in society. Not everyone agreed that that was the, uh, that that was the natural role of lawyers, let alone the role of the organized bar. And this debate came to a head in 1972 when he no longer was the head of the New York Bar Association, but he proposed this uh, association adopt a resolution that read as follows. 
that the association strongly opposes the continued involvement of uh, American involvement in the war of Indochina and strongly urges the in, in immediate withdrawal of all American military forces therefrom. He says, frankly, I can't imagine today that any bar association would undertake something that courageous and that controversial. Those days have passed. Why have those days passed? Why was that something that in 1972, the head of the New York City Bar Association, one of the largest and oldest and most prestigious and blah, 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 all these people had everything to lose then, just like they think they got so much to lose now. What happened to people that these attorneys, number one, saw themselves as leaders? They saw themselves as professionals. They saw themselves as leaders of the community. They saw themselves as leaders of this country. Whatever judgments they were able to win, we're going to, so goes the rest of the nation. Whatever precedents they were able to set, so goes the rest of the legal process for other individuals. People had as much on the line as anybody has on the line today. But it was something in people at the time where they took what they had and they used it to facilitate change. They put out their word and said, look, we need to stop the wars. Not even necessarily associated with practicing law on a day-to-day basis, but they had that kind of influence and they used it for that purpose. Who's advocating today? And so he's talking about how they would advocate for something like that back then. We need attorneys now to be advocating for an end to mass incarceration. If, as is often alleged, and as you will see references to in the essay we've all been discussing today, there's a widespread malaise among young lawyers. I suggest it is because, at least in part, they have had to repress or at least subordinate the quest for justice that led them to want to become lawyers in the first place. Of course, even lawyers devoted to what I've been calling the fourth principle may have different views as to what societal issues are of such central concern that lawyers should feel a professional responsibility to speak out about them. But I want to suggest one such issue, and it's one, frankly, that would not raise problems for Whitney Seymour because it's very close to the administration of justice. That is the issue of mass incarceration today. I should mention at the outset that the relative failure of lawyers and the bar associations to speak out on this issue pales in comparison to the silence of the judges who it seems to me have a special duty to be heard on these issues. More generally, judges become accustomed to imposing prison terms as the norm. With the passage of time, there were fewer and fewer judges who had any experience with any gentler approaches. And where in all of this stands the judiciary? In some ways, this should be our issue. Not just because sentencing has historically been the prerogative of judges, but also because we are forced to impose these sentences that many of us feel are unjust and counterproductive in the first place. So we're at least seeing some of these judges begin to speak up on it. And we don't have the time today, but I wanted to play for you. I I think we've played this clip before, but I just wanted to remind you again of of the uh, conversation of the Supreme Court justices, Anthony Kennedy and Stephen Breyer, when they went to the the House and spoke on... on, uh, They were actually there to speak on the budget for 2016 for the Supreme Court. But they ended up speaking on mass incarceration and calling out the judges and calling out the system and saying, you know, what are we doing? What is what's happening here? What what do we have in place? Why are we not doing our jobs? Why are we letting them cripple us in this way? 
So it's not like Congress had any answers for it because, hell, the private prisons are all in their pockets. All of their campaigns are being financed, especially people that are on committees having to do with criminal justice and so forth. They're paying it. We told you CCA and GEO Group combined for over $45 million in lobbying contributions and campaign contributions in just a 10-year time period, and that's on the table. Told you about uh, last week the the story. Oh, where was the guy from? One of the congressmen that was caught up with uh, taking over $160,000 in clothes, food. He took $15,000 to help pay for his daughter's wedding. His wife was taking benefits and trips. And, and all this guy wanted in return was for him to endorse this new some new drug they had or some new uh, supplement or something he was putting out and it did guess the congressman swore it that, oh no I never did anything I never said anything people give us gifts and do stuff like this for us all the time but it didn't influence me to do anything so hopefully there was some sort of a narrative connected narrative to the program today. I mean, I, I realize I get into my rants, but um, hopefully there was something that you could get from this that that connected, um, you know, all these stories together. And then our um, unexplainable Black Death profile. Before we go, is young sister Ayanna Stanley Jones, seven year old baby girl, caught up in one of these police raids like what we talked about that have taken away the freedoms that the nation supposedly supposedly was created to create for us seven year old Ayana was asleep on her couch Sunday May 16th when her home was raided by Detroit police SWAT team the police who were looking for a murder suspect that was not there lobbed a flashbang grenade into the living room before opening fire into the smoke from the front porch. Ayana was shot in the face and killed. Now they got a tip, again, from somebody that wasn't there and couldn't substantiate what they said. It wasn't even the right place to be. The person wasn't there. And it just so happens this was a uh, episode of the TV show, The First 48, that was being recorded. So these cops are running and gunning for the TV cameras. And they killed this little baby girl. And we had a black woman judge, Cynthia Gray Hathaway, who dismissed jurors after about an hour, urging them to keep working. And the jury sent three notes, the last one indicating it couldn't reach a unanimous verdict in its deliberations. And the cop, Joseph Weekly, who claimed he accidentally shot her, so he didn't even deny that he that he shot this child. He just said it was an accident. He's charged with involuntary manslaughter for it. Said he accidentally fired his gun, killing her. While leading officers on that raid, he said he pulled the trigger trigger during a struggle with her grandmother. But the grandmother says she never had anything to do with it. And there's this video of her being out here where she's boohooing and crying on the stand and saying, why would you even lie on me like this and say 
I never even came close to you. I never even saw you. When I came out, my granddaughter was already dead. So he was uh, already retried and he was already acquitted. So that's over. No justice, no peace. But I will say peace to the abolitionists because you out here fighting. You're out here in the trenches. You out here sacrificing. You out here giving your lives. You're giving up your peace to create peace for us all. So I say peace to the abolitionists, but death to these oppressors. I'm out. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.